Good morning, Wilton Hills. Good to see you all this morning. Good to be with you all this morning, worshiping God. And now we're going to have a little word. And hello, Padrishners. Good to see you. Actually, I'm not seeing you, but uh, good to have you on board as well. Uh, if I could just put a little plug in for that uh, tap uh, party that's going on this Friday. Um, it has a special place in my heart because I have a son with disabilities, as, as some of you know. And uh, I'd encourage you, if it's all possible, to come out and make this be part, part of it, either for part of the time or all the time. I, I, I really, it's a very special community of people uh, who don't get out there very much, certainly don't get out around church folks very much, and we're honored to be able to have this party hosted here. And if you can come out there and just, we're, they're just playing games and having different things for these people, and, and just to be with them and get to meet them and maybe play a game with them and whatever. So if you can make that, uh, I'd really encourage you to make it. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving, put on a pound or two, I imagine. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just say this, that the, the key to jo having joy in your life is to be thankful, to be filled with gratitude. Show me a person who's giving thanks, who really is grateful, and I'll show you a joyful person. And so Thanksgiving really should not be something we celebrate once a year. It's good to have a little token national holiday, fine, but um, if, if you're giving thanks one day a year, that's the, a perfect prescription for being miserable 364 days out of the year. So think about that. Uh, uh, cultivate gratitude in your heart. Now, we're starting a new series here this morning, Across the Universe, our, our kind of Christmas series. Um, and I want to start by reading two passages of Scripture. The first one is from Psalms 19, a passage that's fairly well known for, for, to a lot of us. Well, the psalmist says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. We were just singing about that a few songs ago. Day after day, they pour, forth, they pour forth their speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. So apparently there's something we can learn from the heavens, from the skies. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice, they make no sound, but they've got a voice. Their voice goes out into all the earth. And though they have no words, their words go to the ends of the world. So the psalmist is saying here that creation, the heavens, Stars, they declare something of the glory of God. They, they are ceaselessly singing about God's greatness. And there's something to be learned from them. They don't use the words that we use. They don't communicate the way we communicate. They have their own language. But the question is, are we listening? Are we tapped into that? Are we learning what we're supposed to learn from the heavens above? And then I want to turn to a passage in the book of Job. Uh, this is a passage where God shows up after... Job and his friends have been debating theology for most of the book of Job. God shows up, and he really shows that both of the theologies at work between Job's friends and Job are, are misguided. Job's friends, they both assume that God is afflicting Job uh, directly, and, and, but Job's friends think that, that Yahweh is just, so Job must deserve what he's getting. He's being punished for his sins. But Job says, no, I'm not a worse sinner than anybody else, so God is just unjust, and he accuses God of some very nasty things as the book of Job unfolds. When God shows up, he doesn't say, hey, listen, I have the right to do whatever I want, so you can't question me. A lot of people think that's what God's saying there, but read the chapters 38 to 41. He never says that. What he does is he, he's trying to show how little human beings know about anything. And that's really the point of the book of Job. We don't know why things happen the way they happen. But it's not because God's all that mysterious, though he's got mysterious aspects to him, but his will and character is not mysterious. It's rather because we know so little about the creation. 
And so Yahweh shows up and he, and he starts chiding Job about creation, asking him questions uh, about the wonders of creation. And then he points out, after he's done with that, he points to Leviathan and, and Behemoth, which are just two ancient ways of, uh, they're like cosmic monsters, the ancient way that people thought about Satan and the powers. And what God is doing there is he's saying to Job this, Job, you don't know anything about creation, and, and you're impotent against these, these beasts. So until you think you can know more than me and do a better job than me in fighting these beasts, maybe you should be a little less quick on the trigger when it comes to accusing me of wrongdoing. That's kind of the point of this. So here's what, what, what the Lord says when he starts this off. The Lord answered Job out of the world one and says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this guy who's talking about he, know now, he knows not what? Gird up your loins like a man, Job. I will question you, and now you will declare to me. Where were you, little fellow, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, since you seem to know so much. You seem to know that I'm the one behind all your suffering. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You know so much, Job. And then he starts asking Job a bunch of questions, just to kind of humble Job. He puts on display the glory, his glory through the creation, and in the process of doing that, he reveals Job's ignorance and humbles Job. And among the questions he says is this, Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Do you know the ordinance of the heaven? Can you establish the rule on earth? Father, be with this message, I pray, for parishioners and everyone in this auditorium, that you open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds to begin to grasp something of the unthinkable magnitude, grandeur, and splendor of who you are as reflected in your creation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here's the thing. In the process of asking Job these questions, you know, God has to enter into Job's worldview, uh, kind of talk his language. And they didn't know much about creation back when Job was written. And so God has to kind of put the cookies on the lowest shelf. He asked basic questions like, Job, um, do you know where the rain comes from? How about the dew? Do you know where dew comes from? What happens to it once the sun comes up? Isn't that strange, Job? Can you explain that? Uh, do you know where wind comes from? And, and he asks these kind of basic questions. And Job's overwhelmed by this because Job doesn't know any of this. Now, the thing is, is some of the questions that Yahweh asked Job, we now could answer. And... Um, that combined with the fact that the whole speech presupposes a primitive cosmology, it can have the effect that uh, Yahweh's monologue doesn't quite overwhelm us the way it was intended to overwhelm Job. So I, what I want to do this morning is, is sort of do a modern paraphrase of that speech, kind of update it a little bit, talk about the universe that we now know is out there, and, and, and the mystery and the wonder of all that. So this is going to be a little bit of a weird sermon, at least for the first half. Um, it's going to sound much more like an astronomy class than a sermon. But what I'm doing here, the series is called Across the Universe, so I want to talk about the universe. And, uh, and in doing that, I'm laying the foundation, not just for what I want to say later on in this message, but I'm laying the foundation uh, for really this whole series. All right? Let's start with Orion. The Lord mentions Orion. Job, uh, can you unleash uh, the cords of Orion or the belt of Orion? Oh, you're not tall enough. You can't reach up that far, can you? And so he's, he's, he's using that to humble uh, Job. Here's the thing. Anx background on, of Orion. Ancient people spent a lot of time looking at the stars. And they have the advantage of looking at stars without any kind of light dilution. I don't know if you've ever been out in the wilderness where you're away from all cities. 
and, and you look at the, the sky, and it's just magnificent. But you've got to be way far away from any kind of civilization to, to do this. But especially if you're at a high altitude. You look at the night sky, and it's just spectacular. You see the, 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 the middle belt of the Milky Way, and it's just so flooded with, 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 with stars. In the city, you can see like five. You lose about 99% of that. But man, it's just magnificent. When I was uh, younger, a lot younger, 18 to 20, I would, uh, for three years straight, go out to Montana. And I go to this forest, Beartooth Forest. It was just north of Yellowstone. I go all by myself. And I just wanted to spend three weeks by myself out in these woods. And I just, just loved it. Um, I was kind of an idiot because I, I would go out to this Beartooth Forest and I wouldn't tell anyone where I was going. I didn't care, uh, carry a flare gun. It, I went to this t- forest because at the time it was like the, the, the least developed area in the continental United States. It was just rugged terrain. Uh, I only once in, in the three times I was out there ever saw another human being out there. That's, so it was very isolated. But I'd go out there, I wouldn't even have a flare gun. I, I was just, I, and I didn't have any gun with me. I didn't have any bear repellent or, or anything. It, it's called Bear Tooth Forest. <laughs> And I heard bears once in a while, but it never occurred to me that they could actually attack me. Uh, you know, they say your prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed here, 24. And so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pass on that one. But yeah, I just go out there. Or maybe I was just such a stud, I was so courageous, you know. I'll take on a bear, no problem. I one time, I'm not kidding, I, I was in this tall grass. I, I was kind of lost. In fact, I, I would purposely get lost the first week and then spend the next two weeks trying to find my way out. Um, it made it a little more fun. But I was in this tall grass, and all of a sudden, I came to this elk. It, it, was, like, it was as far away as that pole. And it was huge. It was just like way up there, this giant antlers. And my only thought was to grab my camera very carefully so I could take a picture of it. And it has a camera with me. And, and, and then it slowly started to turn away. And so I followed it taking pictures. I only learned about five years ago that those things, when they're startled, usually stampede you to death. And I just, I was like in little wonderland. Oh, nature is so delightful. So... But I'd go out there and, and I, I would camp uh, at like, uh, on the top of these mountains, uh, the, the, the peak of this forest, and it was like 10, 12,000 uh, feet elevation. And at night, I'd just stare at the sky, and it was just so flooded with stars. It was just magnificent. I had never seen a- anything quite like that. Well, the ancients always looked at the sky that way because they didn't have artificial light. And as they would do that, what they would, uh, they didn't have any kind of entertainment, TV, cable like we have today. Lucky people. They, they, so they're, they make entertainment for themselves. And they look at the stars and they connect dots and they'd find figures there. The way we see faces in the clouds. And they'd, make, they'd kind of make figures. And then they'd tell stories about those figures. Make up stories. And one of the most famous was Orion. Orion was, was, was conceived of as this mighty warrior. That's what you have to work with. Now, what, now what the ancients actually imagined, Dan, can you show the, this, the, pit, the drawing? See, out of that little constellation, they made this. And they would tell stories about Orion, the mighty hunter, the mighty warrior, and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Other cultures had other names for this being and, and other you know, things that he did. But um, it, it was all kind of around this. The earliest drawing we have of Orion is, is this cave uh, in eastern Germany. This is 35,000 years old. And you can see Orion right there, and he's fighting these beasts, or taming them, or who knows what he's doing. But uh, we find that the, the Orion constellation was, was written down uh, 35,000 years ago. So these legends go back a long, long time. That's, that, that's the Orion that uh, Yahweh is referring to 
He's saying, Job, are you able to unloose his belt? Showing that you're not tall enough. Now, the ancients thought that those stars up there were gods. Most ancient people thought that those were gods. Put in the dome, they thought there was a dome over the earth, and these, these gods were the, the gods of the dome, gods of the night night sky. And that dome, they thought, was a mile or two up there, because that's the way it looks, right? Now, we know a little bit more about Orion than they did uh, back in uh, Job's day. Those stars up there are not little gods and having the sky. Those stars are actually humongous balls of burning gas. Like that, humongous. Our star is one of those, our, our sun is one of those giant burning balls of gas. Now, our, our sun is 800, it's, it's huge, 864,938 miles across. You can fit nine Earths right alongside of there, okay? So it's, it's humongous, burning ball of hot gas. Yeah, compared to the Earth, if you put, put the scale here, there's Jupiter, which is the largest planet, then there's Saturn, then there's Uranus and Neptune, and then there's Earth. See the little tiny Earth there? Where's my little pointer thing? There's a little Earth. It's, it's minuscule next to our sun. It's right there. It's minuscule. You can fit over a million Earths inside of that sun. So the sun is enormous. But our sun is actually not that big of a star. There's some that are much bigger. Here's our sun next to Rigel. That's a, a star out there. And there's our sun right there. And it's, so it's just a little bit bigger than the earth compared to our sun. You can fit close to a million of our suns inside Rigel. But Rigel isn't by any means even close to the biggest or even the biggest category. Here's Rigel next to Catus Majoris. Uh, you can fit about a million Rigels into there. It's just, it's, it's just incredible. So we're talking about gigantic, enormous balls of burning gas. That's what we're looking at there in the night sky. They, 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 they look tiny because they're so far away. But actually, when you look out at the star with the, the, your naked eye, most of what you're seeing out there are not just giant balls of fire. You're seeing galaxies that have billions and billions of giant balls of fire, billions and billions of stars. Each one of those little dots... Uh, yes, each one of these little dots, the majority of them are galaxies, which themselves contain billions and billions of, of, of uh, stars. Give you some idea of the magnitude of this. Now, ancient people thought that those uh, gods dwelled just a, a short distance away. They're all the same distance from the earth, and they're a mile or two up there. We now know that they are light years away, and um, that the stars of Orion, for example, they vary greatly in their distance from, from the earth. So here's Orion. The closest star to us is Bellatrix, which is 243 light years from Earth. The farthest one here is uh, Anilum, which is uh, 1,360 light years from us. The most distant thing in Orion is right there, and that's the Orion Nebula. That's a bunch of gas and, and dust and stars in their initial formation. And that's 2,000 times bigger than our sun, that thing right there. And that's about 15 to 1,600 light years from Earth. So they vary greatly. Um, and and, and to, to get an idea about what that distance is, what that distance involves, light travels extremely fast. In fact, it's, it's the, 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 according to contemporary physics, it is um, the, the fastest thing possible. Nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. In one second, it goes 186,000 miles per second. 
uh, if there's nothing to obstruct it, and you're on the earth, shine a flashlight in any direction, and that light that comes out of your flashlight will circle the earth seven times in one second. You can't even count that fast. So think about it, like, I turn on the flashlight, boom, one, two, three, five, six, seven, 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 seven times a second. That's pretty fast. And in a year, a light year is, is the distance that that light will travel in one year. It's six trillion miles. Now, a trillion, a trillion is a thousand billions, and a billion is a thousand millions, and a million is a thousand thousands. Light travels six of those uh, in, in, in a year. So it travels unbelievably fast. And yet, though it travels that fast, it takes light 243 years to get from Bellatrix to us, and that's the closest star in Orion. It takes light 1,360 years to get to us from Analam, uh, even though it travels that fast. So if you go out tonight and you look up in the starry sky and you find Analam there in the constellation of Orion, you're looking at light that originated. The light that's hitting your eyes originated from Analam in 656 AD. In 656, Islam was just getting off the ground in 656. It had been 30 years old. Uh, the population of the earth in, in 656 was 2,008 million. That's roughly the population of Pakistan or Nigeria. You're, you're looking into the distant past, and that's how it is with all the stars we're seeing in the sky. We're looking at light that is hundreds and sometimes thousands and sometimes millions of years old. And if you had a telescope that was powerful enough, you could look at stars that are, the lights coming to you from billions of years ago. It travels extremely fast, and yet... It takes so long to reach us because the universe is that vast. To get a, to get a better idea of this, um, think of this. The closest star we have to us is, is Proxima Centauri. There it is right there. See that little guy? It's Proxima Centauri. Uh, he's the closest one to us, for a mere 4.2 light years from us. It seems pretty close, 4.2. But if you were to try to get to Proxima Centauri on a rocket ship, the rock, according to current technology, our rocket ships can travel about 25,000 miles per hour, uh, it would take you 81,000 years to get to Proxima Centauri, and that's the closest star to us. Now, if you wanted to get to Bellatrix, the closest star in Orion, it would take you 60.5 times that long. Roughly 5 million years traveling in one of our rocket ships to get to Bellatrix, the closest star to us in Orion. And if you wanted to get to Adalam, which is the farthest star in, in Orion, 1,360 uh, light years away, you'd have to go 360 times that far, and it would take you over 2 billion years traveling in one of our rocket ships, 25,000 miles per hour, it'd take you over 2 billion years to get to Adalam. And what's really crazy is that Adalam is relatively close to us by astronomical standards. It's not that distance, in, uh, distant. In fact, if you multiply the distance between us and Analam a thousand times, you'd be just, just over one million light years away. Uh, that would take you approximately to where uh, the Leo T uh, galaxy is. And the Leo T galaxy is considered one of our closest neighbors in the universe. A thousand times the distance from us to Analam. It would take us two billion, over two billion years to get to Analam. A thousand times that would still get you to one of the closest galaxies to our neighbor. In fact, astronomers say that anything they define, anything within a hundred million light years, a hundred million, 
The distance that light travels in 100 million years, anything within that radius is considered a local object, a local star, or a local galaxy. It's right in our backyard, 100 million years. 100 times what it takes to get to Leo T. It's a pretty big place that we're drawing in here. If, um, if you think of the whole universe like the Earth, okay, if, the Earth was a, if the universe was the size of the Earth, then the distance between us and Analam, 1,360 light years away, is roughly the distance between your couch and your television set. So it would take you, traveling in, a, in our, one of our current rocket ships, over 2 billion years to get from your couch to your television set. So now, if you wanted to get out of your neighborhood, wanted to get out of the Twin Cities, how long would that take you, traveling at that speed? And what if you wanted to get out of the state of Minnesota? And what if you wanted to get to New York? Think how long it would take. If it takes you 2 billion years to get to your television set, what would it take to get to New York? And I don't even want to think about how long it would take to get to China. We live in a universe that is absolutely incomprehensibly vast. It's estimated right now, the known universe, the known universe is 95 billion light years in diameter. That means if you're standing on one edge of the universe and you shine a flashlight, that light traveling at 186,000 miles per second, 6 trillion miles in a year, it would take that light 95 billion years to get to the other side. But actually, you wouldn't get to the other side because the universe is expanding. In fact, it's expanding at an accelerating rate due to dark matter, but let's not go there. It's another sermon. Uh, but it would take 95 billion years, even if it was stationary, for that light to get to the other side. It's unimaginably vast. And this universe in which we live has billions and billions of galaxies, each one of which has billions and billions of stars. Now, up until very, very recently, uh, astronomers estimated that there was between 100 and 200 billion galaxies in the universe. And this is the known universe, folks. We, we don't know what's beyond the known universe because it's unknown, uh, which raises an interesting question. Um, what is the universe expanding into? <laughs> Does it go on forever or not? Either way, you can't conceive of it, but there again, that's another sermon. So, um, the, 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 in the known universe, there's 100 to 200 billion uh, uh, galaxies. At least that's how they estimated up until very recently. But then, we turned the Hubble telescope out there into the most unpopulated patch of space that we knew about. In fact, we, it looked like a total, total void. And they wanted to peer deep, more deeply into the universe than we've ever peered before going back billions and billions and billions of years. And when they did that, here's what they found. This is the actual photograph. It actually was not a void at all. It was populated with millions of galaxies. And what, what you're seeing here, I read on this thing, and, and they, the, 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 almost all of these are galaxies, not, not individual stars. There's three they think are individual stars. The, the rest of these, each one of them, contains billions and billions and billions of galaxies. You see right there. And on the basis of this, they revised their estimation. They now think that there's up to 10 times as many galaxies as they thought just a couple of years ago. Which means that instead of 100 to 200 billion galaxies, they've got, a, they now estimate that there's a 100 to 200 trillion galaxies out there, each one containing billions and billions of stars. And remember, a trillion is a thousand billions, and a billion is a thousand millions, and a million is a thousand thousands. That's a lot of stars and a lot of galaxies in a really big, incomprehensibly large universe. We can't even calculate the number of stars that are out there. Uh, one Yale astronomer guessed that there's something like 300 sextillion stars out there. What is sextillion? I don't know, but it's got more zeros than can fill this room, all right? It, it's, it's, you might as well be speaking in tongues at that point. You know, it, it's, it, say infinite, it doesn't matter. It, it's unimaginable. Uh, one last thing, and that is, uh, amongst those 200 trillion galaxies that are out there, there's one galaxy called the Milky Way. 
And this is not the Milky Way because we don't have a photo of the Milky Way because we can't get out of the Milky Way. We're in it, and it would take us uh, billions of years to get far enough to take this kind of a picture. This is Andromeda, which is a galaxy that's very close to the Milky Way, so it will have to do. So here it is. Um, now, this Milky Way that we live in, our, our little gal our galaxy, is 100,000 light years across and contains roughly 150 billion other stars, all right? Now, that, that's impressive, except that over half of the galaxies that we've observed out there are larger than ours, some of them much larger, some of them hundreds of times and even thousands of times larger than our galaxy, having hundreds and thousands of times more stars than our galaxy. But this is the Milky Way, 150 billion. And somewhere in the outer parameter, right, right around there, there's this sun called Earth. Let's pick that one. Although, no, ours is actually smaller. So let's go, let's go right there. Yeah, there. And, and, and there's a little, little uh, grain of sand circling the sun called the Earth. And they're waving to us right now, saying, you're going to blind us if you keep shooting us with that razor beam. So, so there we are. And uh, at this point, you ought to be feeling kind of small, <laughs> kind of small. And that's the point of the whole thing. When you consider, when you consider the vastness of the universe, I mean, if the universe was, again, the size of the earth, our, our sun, our whole solar system, would be a grain of sand. You go to the beach, pick up one grain of sand, and that is, that is our sun compared to the whole earth. We're very, very small, inconceivably small, but because the universe is inconceivably large, inconceivably vast. But see, that ought to humble us on the one hand. We're so microscopically small in the scheme of things, and it ought to fill us with awe, because if you're looking at it right, if you're listening and hearing their language, the heavens declare the glory of God. Heavens declare the glory of God, the wonder of, 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 of it all. The unfathomable, unthinkable nature of God. It, 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 it points to the God who spoke this all into being. He just spoke it all into being. And I know science tells us that there's a, all matter was condensed into a, maybe a needle point, a little tiny thing, and then it blew up, and now we've got this big bang going on. I'd like to know what caused it to blow up, but I never get an answer to that one. Um, and where did the little dot come from? But aside from that, I don't care. It does seem like we're kind of in a big bang because things are expanding away from each other. Everything's you know, going in different directions. In fact, the stars of Orion, get this, like all stars, they're, they're running from each other at thousands of miles per second. And here's what's, what's just kind of crazy, is that they're, they're receding from each other at thousands of miles per second, and yet... When we look at Orion, we're seeing basically the same thing that Job saw when he looked at Orion and that the prehistoric guy saw when, when he looked at Orion 35,000 years ago. Even though those stars are expanding or receding from each other at thousands of miles per second. And the reason is that we can look at the same thing is because it, they're so far from us that even though they're traveling at that speed away from each other, it's neg neg negligible from our perspective. Again, it's just a kind of a sign of this transcendence. This, this unthinkable, unfathomable, incomprehensible vastness of this universe. But the thing is, is that the incomprehensible, unthinkable vastness of this universe, if you're looking at it with the eyes of faith, and who cares how it came about, it was God who spoke this into being. And, and it testifies to the God who speaks every, every one of those trillion galaxies and every one of the planets around those, the, 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 the suns in those galaxies. Uh, he, he spoke it all in existence, and he holds that all in existence. The Bible tells us that he holds all things by the power of his word. So right now, every nanosecond, God is holding in existence every one of those two trillion 
uh, galaxies with their billions and billions of, of stars, with whatever planets are circling those things, with whatever rocks are on those planets, with whatever molecules and atom and subatomic particles that are comprising those rocks and that comprise all things, God holds that in existence every nanosecond. And if the universe is great and unthinkable, and it is, well, how much infinitely greater is the God who spoke it all into existence and holds it all in existence? Amen? And as vast as this universe is, 95 billion light years, uh, 95 billion light years across, as vast as that is, it just testifies to the vastness of God. I hate using spatial terms with God, but God's unimaginably, unthinkably bigger than that because there's no limitations to God. In fact, the, the whole of this universe, 95 billion light years across, uh, would be a little, little freckle, a little pimple on the, on the tip of his little finger. And it would be that big compared to him, even if it was 20 billion times larger than that. Sometimes people say, well, gosh, why is the universe so big? It doesn't have to be that big. Um, there must be other life out there. And maybe there's other life out there. On a scientific basis, it seems pretty reasonable. But we're talking about God. It, all factors, all, it changes the game. Because, well, it's in, unimaginably large for us. To God, it's, it's, it would be, it's little, it's tiny, it's pinky. And it would be little tiny nothing on the tip of his finger, even if it was a trillion times bigger than that. And so it could just be that God created the vastness of this just to kind of show off a little bit. He's an artist. It doesn't have to have a purpose. He's just displaying it. He's just, hey, watch this. <laughs> and as we look at it, we should be awed by it, and it should, it should bring us into wonder. But as mind-numbing and unfathomable and incomprehensible as all that is, there's one thing that dwarfs all of that in significance. It's the most unfathomable incomprehensible fact in all of history and the whole universe. And that is that that God, that incomprehensible, transcendent God, that God who spoke all this into being and who holds it all into being. Well, here's the thing. One of those two trillion galaxies is the Milky Way. And on the outer rim of that Milky Way, there's a little tiny star. And around that star, there's a little tiny grain of sand. And on that little grain of sand, there's a population of people who think that they're God. I want to be Lord of their own life, and who reject God. And the most unfathomable, incomprehensible, mysterious, wonderful fact in all history and in this whole universe is that this creator God cares about these speck of dust people and loves these speck of dust people to the point where he's willing to become one of them and give his life for them to be reconciled to them. That, folks, is incomprehensible. It's unimaginable. It's unfathomable. It's... That is the wonder of all wonders. We'll have a lot more to say about that in this series. Here's what I want us to focus on right now. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, that story of God coming down, crossing the universe to come down to us can become too familiar. We forget who we're talking about when we're talking about God. And that can cheapen the love story. The, the story of God coming down and, and loving us like this, you only appreciate the depth of that love to the degree that you appreciate the grandeur and majesty of the God who did it. Uh, this is why it's so important to sometimes draw attention to the unfathomable mystery around us, what theologians sometimes call signs of transcendence, the mysteries that point beyond themselves to this transcendent uh, God who's utterly unlike us and utterly like anything in creation. There's, there's nothing common about him. It's important to reflect on that because otherwise we cheapen the, the, the love story. God can become for us sort of a buddy in the sky, you know, if we're not careful and don't keep, stay mindful of the transcendent and incomprehensible God who is beyond anything we can imagine, well, 
we, we, we forget how ignorant we are. We forget how small we are. We forget how undeserving we are. We can become like Job and we lose our sense of awe and reverence to the almighty creator God. And, 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 and we forget how, how dependent we are on him for our existence and for his mercy. If we're not careful, we, we lose that sense of transcendence and awe, then our worship gets cheap. Worship can become just about singing songs to the buddy in the sky. And we may still say, oh, he's awesome. But see, the word awesome today can mean anything. You know, Vikings won last week. Awesome. Uh, you got a new hairdo. Oh, you look awesome. Got a new car. Oh, that's an awesome car. God is awesome. But see, awesome there means something like impressive or cool or pretty. Or, but we don't want to say that about God. Oh, God, you're so cool. Yeah, gnarly. No, it, it's, God is altogether different from he can't be put on the same category as the Vikings or cars or hairdos or anything because he's altogether different. He's altogether other. That's his holiness, his, his otherness, his beyondness. And we can't ever lose that beyondness. It's, our, our worship then just becomes, becomes cheap. We must always hear that the heavens declare the glory of God. And what they do is they point beyond themselves. They're signs of transcendence. And we see something of the glory of God reflected in them. Never lose that sense of awe. Think for a moment. Think for a moment on an experience that you had that was, that, that was maybe your most awesome experience, awe-inspiring experience, where something just blew you away. One that comes to mind for me is, is in the early 90s, I was doing this retreat up in northern Minnesota, way up there, way far away from any kind of light, so the light was undiluted. And after a session, we were laying out in the field and just marveling at the stars of the sky, and suddenly the sky caught on fire. Uh, we started seeing flames over the treetops, and, and, but it was the northern lights. And then they just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And first we're going, oh, look over there, look over there, look over there. But we finally saw that we were surrounded. So he's laid on the ground right there in the field and just took it all in. And we were inside this, this emerald f- fortress. It was, it, was abs- it was just like that, but all around the sky. And there's, there's, there's violets and there's greens and it's fluorescent and it was surrealistic. It was otherworldly. It was magical. I, I got goosebumps, and then I started to laugh, and then I started to cry, and it was just magnificent because it's so, it takes up so much of the sky. It's so large, and yet it's moving, and it's, it's just morphing in front of you. It was dancing. It was, it was incredible. And at first, we were saying things like, oh, it's awesome. It's unbelievable, incredible, incomprehensible. But then I recalled that what I'm seeing there is simply a reflection of the glory of God, the splendor of God, the transcendence of God, the mystery of God. The God who is the source of all that's majestic, all that's beautiful, all that's, that, that, that's good. And so I begin to direct my words towards God. God, you are beautiful. You are mind-boggling. You are incredible because he's the artist behind this whole thing. And at that point, my words become worship. Uh, they're all inspired worship. And all has to be part of our worship, reverence for the God that we're talking about. Uh, you know, we're, we're, worship is simply the natural response to awe. It's what we're doing there in the field. Um, worship is not singing songs to a buddy in the sky, and worship certainly isn't, as many atheists think. It's not debasing yourself by worshiping a tyrant so he won't squish you. That's how a lot of atheists see this. No, worship is simply the response of awe and reverence and delight in the God who's reflected in the northern lights, the God who's reflected in the vastness of this unthinkably large creation, the God who's, who's reflected in the majestic mountains and in, 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 in full moon on, on, on new, new fallen snow, and the God who's reflected sometimes in, in, in beautiful music and a newborn baby, and there's signs of his transcendence all around us that can fill us with awe if we keep our eyes open. It's so important that we don't lose the sea. It's easy 
It's easy to get secularized where you, you just are concerned about everyday stuff. You got a job to do, you got things to do, you got to go to the supermarket, you got to do this. And, and there's all these practical things we've got to do, and we've got to do them for sure. But if we're not careful, that we get defined by that. We get secularized. The flood of, of mundane concerns just squishes a sense of awe out of us, and we live lives that aren't wonder-filled. How crucial it is that we make space, carve out space, to capture that awe again, to be impressed by the signs of transcendence around you. And maybe in a look of a person's face, it may be the starry sky, it may just be considering the vastness of things, it may be in music, but to carve out space for that which is not necessary to get by in this world, right? That, that it's just devoted to considering the greatness of the God who created you and who speaks you into existence every second and to give him the reverence and awe that is due his name. So I want to close this sermon by putting this into practice. Let's give this a try, a little sample of what it might look like in your life. Um, I'm going to uh, play a song here. I, I think music, for me anyways, music is one of the things that most gets me in touch with the transcendence of God, the, the otherness of God. It takes me to the throne room of heaven. And so I'm going to play a piece here. It's, it's a Michael, uh, by Michael Hoppy, I think you pronounce his name. It's called That Majestic Land. And as we're playing this, we're going to show scenes of nature here. And the scenes are, can be signs of transcendence if you're listening to the music of the heavens, if, if you're hearing them declare the glory of God. And so as we look at these scenes and, and take in this music, just let it be a pointer to the glory of God. Whatever beauty you see here, let that just remind yourself that's a reflection of the beauty of God. And let it fill you with awe and wonder and let it lead you to worship. Uh, some people find that they, can, they, they do better if they close their eyes and just imagine scenes. And so if, if, if that's you, if that's fine. You don't have to look at these pictures, but they're there if they help. But let's enter into the presence of God, into the awe of God, into the wonder of God, into the incomprehensible transcendence of God as it's reflected in various ways throughout the world. Holy Spirit, come, flood this place as we now sit in your presence to be awed by you. Amen.
mind-blowing is, is what he is. We are so incomprehensibly small. He is so, well, there's no limit. And yet, God who spoke this 95 billion light year across the universe, that God is desperate in love with each one of those people on that little grain of sand that circles this little planet and this little galaxy amongst trillions of other galaxies. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. Make space. Make space to keep all in your life. Uh, carve it out. It's the most humane part of us. If we lose this, we're less human. And if we lose this, we're not really worshiping the true God because the true God is awe-inspiring. Would you stand? Uh, as they close, I want to invite the prayer teams to come forward. And if you're here and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, please come up here and pray with these folks. They'd love to minister to you. Or if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, the God of this universe gave his life for you, and he would love to be in relationship with you. He desperately wants to be in relationship with you. And if there's something pulling on your heart to say yes to that, come up here and talk to these folks, and they'd love to get you started on uh, learning what it is to walk with God. As we leave here, can we do it with the people who are committed to maintaining as a treasure in our heart an awe and a reverence to the God who spoke this universe into existence, this mysterious, awesome, unfathomable God whose unfathomability is most revealed when he gives his life for us on the cross. Can we commit to being an awesome people? If you agree with that, say amen and get out of here. Amen. God bless you. Go out. Be wonder-filled.